Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Friday, July 8th. We are here live. It's a freaky free-for-all Friday, and it's also time for trucking trend technology and efficiency. I'm a little scattered this morning. I'll get uh, I'll get my act together here in just a second. I got a lot going on. I got a lot uh, lot on my mind. A lot I want to talk about today. Uh, looks like John and Joel are jumping in and joining us right now. So. I'm going to let them tell us what's on their mind before I get to mine. Uh, I kind of have two topics today that, uh, I don't know, they might take a lot of time. Hell, they could take the whole show. We'll see. But uh, it looks like Joel is up on the board first. So uh, let's hear from him. Joel, welcome back. Hey, Kevin, how are you today? Good. What's on your mind this week? I need some help from you and John. Um, I, I've got a term that's floating around out there that about 50 people have kind of inboxed me on that. I guess I'm not understanding how this is used. Um, and the way that I understand that it's trying, trying to potentially be used is kind of backwards of how I've always saw things. So, um, when you and Bruce were talking on the show Tuesday, um, the term rotating mass had come up and I'm just trying to understand how this is being used so I can get my mind around this because I, I think I have a totally different understanding of rotating mass than, than the way it's being used. And I'm, uh, maybe I'm backwards on this. So I was gonna, I was gonna ask you and John exactly how you guys we're using this term or how you you thought it should be used and what what your thoughts were i i think john's going to be the one that's really going to help us with this one i don't think i i think i'm in kind of the same boat as you are i have touched on this topic over the years but not a lot because i don't completely understand there's actually two i'll throw another one in here rotating mass and unsprung weight Every well, time ro- those two rotating, come up, rotating. Mm-hmm. I'm a little confused. I think. So with rotating mass, the way that I've always looked at this, and this sounds like I'm completely opposite of the way that that Bruce and and a lot of the people are understanding this. Rotating mass and moment of inertia are very analogous in trucking, and I have spent my entire career trying to reduce rotating mass and it sounds like a lot of folks see a benefit to increasing rotating mass and i'm see, i guess I, i'm lost i think you so and maybe, i are in the same John boat needs to break this down I, <laughs> I and when i say i've touched on it i've touched on it in this with the same thought as you when you reduce rotating mass i thought that was a good thing so you know when i was always looking at tires as far as rolling resistance the smaller you make a tire, the less rolling resistance it has, the less contact patch, the less friction. That also tends to lower rotating mass, I think. It's a smaller, lighter assembly. I always thought that was two benefits, but I'm not sure that I understand Correct. this either. So I've always kind of thought of rotating mass applies to a flywheel with a reciprocating engine going up and down, you know, that piston stops and starts at top dead center. And, 
Yeah, yeah, there's rotation going on there, but I'm not sure how rotation to a reciprocating engine. I think it would work great with like a, a rotary engine where you have true rotation going on. So, you know, the more mass you have, the more parasitic drag is involved there, I, I think. That's what I thought. Um, that's kind of what the whole the whole iTorque thing is based on. What we tried to do was while ro- while reducing the actual mass. And that's what a that's what a turbo compounding unit does. So we're getting the same rotational force as a large displacement engine with much less drag in that rotation. And I, I, maybe there's something I'm missing here. So I just just I, wanted to, to yeah, get no, your guys' opinion. I, I thought I think you and I have thought about this probably in similar ways. And I'm pretty sure right now John is jumping up and down and pounding on his phone saying, "Let me in, let me in." I'll explain it. <laughs> <laughs> so, let, let, let's let's see if I'm right or not, John. Are, is like that what you're doing right now? Oh man, you're driving me nuts! I, yeah. I, had, I, had, <laughs> I had a feeling you were in the background going, "Let me in, damn it!" I'll tell you what's going on. So go ahead. <laughs> well, well, on, on the uh, the rotating mass thing, the answer is yes, Joel. Joel you're absolutely correct. Um, well, you have to have to understand, and you work the polar moment into that as well, because if you have like a flywheel that weighs 47 pounds or something and all the weight's out on the edges, believe it or not, it's different than one that carries its weight way close to the middle. Uh, and it takes energy to accelerate that, hey, but it also gives back a little bit of energy hey John, on the other side. Can, can yeah. I stop you there so I can understand something? Because this is probably physics. Is the reason for that the <laughs> same reason a breaker bar works? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Same reason. The, the farther out you put that weight, the more leverage and power you give it. Right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. The, more, the more leverage, the more power it takes to accelerate it. Yeah. Well. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So, uh, like the answer is yes, and as little as possible. The benefits gained, as we know from all of our energy discussions of late, nothing is free. Right. So yeah, so you got a big flywheel, you get zooming, and it does help you a little bit after you've got it up to speed. You know, it might 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 help some inertia heading up a hill or something, but it's not worth it. There there are losses involved in, in getting the thing up to speed that aren't regained with the benefits of having that big thing spinning around. So it, it's it's pretty simple. You want as little as possible, Joel. You and the Volvo thing and the iTorque and keeping the rotating mass and the, the rotating assembly and the engine as light as possible and and so forth is the right path because it takes energy to get that stuff moving. And you, Kevin, the, the thing with wheel or tire size is you'll get to a point where just spinning the bearing too fast, there's too much friction and there's other things is that the smaller you get. So, the, so the, that, that's another thing with diminishing returns. Uh, you know, the, the slower turning bearing and so forth. And then, then the, the, the mechanicals around whatever's turning uh, benefit from it, you know, being lighter and taller. Uh, but that's, that's something that happens there. On to unsprung rate really, really unsprung weight really quickly. This is my world. Um, I, I deal with this on race cars all the time. I mean, lighter wheels, lighter anything uh, that is not suspended on the car. So you could consider like the wishbones that attach the the steering knuckles or the uprights, as we call them, to the to the to the chassis. Those are like half. You can take half of that weight. You call it call it unsprung. Uh, but the wheel bearings, the brakes, the, you know, the rotors, the calipers, all that stuff that is not suspended, shall we say, uh, is what's considered 
unsprung weight. Okay. And I, that makes sense. Unsprung weight is, is kind of a devil in that, it, in my world anyway, so it really affects the handling of the car. Uh, controlling that weight is basically the first job, believe it or not, of your of your shock absorbers. The shock absorber is not just there to give you a nice ride or whatever. Uh, it, it's there first and foremost to control the spring, to, to keep the spring from setting up an oscillation. Thus, the polar moment of the unsprung weight bouncing up and down on the road. So the shock absorber really, number one job is to control the spring and the unsprung weight. Uh, that trans into a better ride, obviously, and, and you better contact patch with the road and a better handling truck, but that's what the shock absorber does. So, uh, and that stuff's very adjustable on the cars that I work with. And, you know, most of my speed is usually in handling, not engine and not other things right. all yeah. in the way that thing handles. And controlling that stuff for me, I mean, I play with spring rates all the time and I play with shock, shock dampening, uh, you know, all over the place. I have four different, different adjustments on my, on my shot, on my dampers. So I can control rebound valving, I could control compression valving, and I control, uh, and I have basically what's a, what's a bleed across either of those where I could uh, take my valving, which is basically a, a shim stack, it, uh, it's like a reed valve in a, in a, in a two-cycle engine. Uh, the fluid pushes on that shim stack, and I can adjust the tension on the shim stack, and I can also bypass fluid around it that's in the shock. So I have a whole bunch of stuff that I do there, and it's all about controlling the unsprung weight and the huh. effect it has okay. on the platform of the vehicle. Yeah. Got it. So that's that. But the, the rotating mass thing is, is, is simple. You don't need to think too much about it. And it does work in with polar moment. Uh, you know, it really is. A, anything that you spin up like that is taking energy to do it. You're burning fuel to turn that weight. And well, yeah, it might be. Kind of, go ahead. Yeah, kind of, kind of why, you know, Kevin, over the years, you've always said when we get out the 16, 17, 18 liter engines, we have a real difficult time getting any fuel efficiency out of them. And to me, the reason why is you've got all this rotating mass that you have to fuel. It doesn't magically spin. And there's a hell of a lot of drag associated with that rotating mass. So um, it, it just, uh, I, I don't know. I just got overloaded by it the other the other day. They just started hitting my inbox like, what the hell are you talking about? You can't do that. I'm like, well, <laughs> this is the way I've always been thought. So, let me ask John. He's going to know this exactly. And and uh, yeah. Um, I, the great thing about this is with the whole iTorque thing. I've got a couple of guys out there that that came out of the the big bore high horsepower engines now. Um, you know that were running over 600 horsepower, and now they're in a 455. And when you talk to them, because we do have that third gear available at highway speed, tenth gear they they will tell you absolutely the 455 is pulling right on par you know with a 525 in the hills with heavy weight because we do have that gearing with torque multiplication that's working to our benefit we have the less parasitic drag the the reduction in rotating mass but we have rotational force provided by that blowdown turbine so i know i mentioned this in the past and i'm not exactly sure work on this, but you you absolutely have an increase in displacement when you add that blowdown turbine. Um, you get the benefits of increased displacement without the drawback of parasitic drag. Now we do get some we do get some back pressure, but they use that back pressure to drive the EGR. 
which allows us to really optimize the turbo for fuel efficiency and not have to use the turbo to push the EGR through the engine. Well, this has been a uh, an educational morning. I like it. So it actually kind of fits with my topic today in my open. I actually have two, and they're kind of different than what we've been talking about, some uh, kind of out there stuff, but not, not a lot. So one of the things I love about the show is just kind of the way the three of us mesh. We think a lot the same ways on a lot of things but then there are real differences in the ways we think that I, I it just helps me a lot like Joel you come and saying okay you tell me what you two think about this and just in this short period of time I think we all learn something um, one of the things that I'm kind of a big believer and there's a ton of them out there I've done most of them I found one I really like um, have either one of you guys ever taken either like personality profiles or any of those kind of strengths tests anything like that uh, like I have the, not. Uh, the Myers-Briggs thing St- or something stuff like, like that. that right yeah Myers-Briggs probably yeah, the... I've not done it yet okay I, so I'm kind of fascinated by these things I've tried a bunch of them over the years some of them you know seem really interesting and then you look at it and go yeah it doesn't really work out in the real world all that well um and i've done a bunch the the one that i absolutely love is called strengths finder and what it does is it asks you a whole bunch of questions they're not right or wrong it's how you would react in a certain situation so they give you a scenario and then you respond by saying i would do this and they seem like really odd random questions and it seems like they're asking the same thing over and over in different ways but when you get done there are basically nine strengths that you have the the biggest thing i got out there's a book by the way the biggest thing i got out of the book was the fact that when I started in business when I was young, and obviously when you start in business, you don't have a lot of money, you have to do everything yourself. I mean, there's, there, there aren't many options. You know, so in trucking, I worked on my truck as much as I could myself to save money. I did my own accounting so I could save money. Basically, just everything. At some point, hopefully you grow and you get successful enough, you can stop doing everything and you can start hiring people. The mistake I was making was I kept looking at the things that I thought were important in business. And even though I wasn't good at them, I kept trying to get good. One of the things that I, you know, is pretty important in business is you have to have structure and systems and kind of rules that you follow. And I hate that kind of stuff. That, that makes me crazy. I'm not good at it. I'm not organized. I don't want to be organized. I hate rules. So, but I always thought, hell, you can't run a business if you're not good at this stuff. So I tried everything. (laughs) I would take classes on being organized. I would buy software. I would buy systems and I'd get all excited and I'd sit down and I'm like, all right, this is it. I'm going to get organized this time. And it would last about a week. And I loved setting up the system. I hate using the system, though. I I love writing spreadsheets because it's challenging. And I go in and figure out formulas and what can I. The minute I'm done writing the spreadsheet, I'm not going to use that thing. I hate that. So. (laughs) But I kept fighting this. And the book, the whole message behind this book was stop trying to be good at things you're not good at. 
just don't do them if you have to. Just just ignore it. Go focus on what you're good at. Spend all of your time doing what you're good at. It was like a lightning bolt for me. I'm like, holy cow, I don't have to try being good at this stuff? Just ignore it or pay somebody else to do it or whatever. From that day on, that's how I've run our whole company. It's how we built our our business model is built around this concept. I'm bumping up against the exact same things that you're describing. I hate that stuff too. Hate it with a passion. You know, I just, I cannot stand it. So, you know, I've, I've, I've brought some people in that are following me around and babysit me when it comes to that. You know, I I like, I like to focus on what I want to focus on when I want to focus on it. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I hear you, man. It's, uh, it can be a real pain in the ass. And I was, worried about that for years and years and years too. In fact, it's, it's a lot of the reason why, um, I always work with, with my brother and my sister-in-law, my sister-in-law is like the best at organization and, and tracking that stuff. And, and she can't stand this kind of abstract thinking that I get going around in my head on things, you know, know. it's like shiny object but, and, yeah. and now you're off and running and it's, it's, it's a little, a little but, crazy, but, um, you know, if you can get somebody to take care of that on the back end, I think you're exactly right. That's yeah. I, I, I'm exactly like you. I, for a week, maybe a week, I would stay organized, and then everything's just a big old cluster, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I know. Now, now imagine your sister-in-law. Imagine being married to her, because that's my situation. <laughs> Lisa is awesome at building systems and organizing and making things work and building flow. And when you do that, you have to do it over and over and over. And it makes me crazy. But I make her crazy with my out there thinking like, well, what about this? You know, what, what if we like, wait a minute, I just built a system to do this. Don't be changing it. Damn it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I bump up against all that stuff all the time. My sister-in-law brother are looking at me like, "Are you freaking smoking crack again?" I'm like, "No, this is cool." <laughs> so, no, I, I, I hear it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this we are we are all we are so similar. It's crazy. I, I I've come to that realization. I mean, I, I don't. You know, my time at Pittsburgh Park was great. It's about how I introduced. To, to, to all of you in this, this community and you know, I love trucks and, and I love the technology and I love all the to the other stuff that I do. But uh, me sitting at a desk all day taking calls from customers, some of which are not happy, um, eating whatever food they were ordering, gaining weight, getting depressed, <laughs> feeling my joints hurt. <laughs> uh, it, it, just, it just didn't work. Oh man! I, I, I mean, it, I tried my I, best. I yep, I know. And I know. I, you know, I, I am at my best when I'm. I don't want to say on my back leg, but when I'm kind of hustling, yeah. I, I, yeah. I enjoy that. Yeah, I really, you know, and and it's starting to pay off. I'm gaining more and more respect. My my daily rates gone through the roof this year. Um, and and I, I seem to have more business. It's you know, I, I'm so, turning stuff away. And I, and so on, on the organization, I just, what I do now is it's super simple because I do need somebody like that too. I, I, I hate that stuff. And my, uh, my ex-wife who I'm quite friendly with still, she was, and still is, she's a bookkeeper at one of the local trade unions. 
And uh, she sort of took their, they, they were doing everything on paper when she got there. And she has no real formal training at this, but she is like the Excel spreadsheet ninja. She is, is unbelievable with formulas and, and working it out. So she completely changed their bookkeeping. But prior to that, with the race team, which is something that they don't teach in schools, which isn't, isn't anything that, that you know, it, it, it's an organizational nightmare. You know, we have guys who are flying in. We have per diem. We have hotel rooms. We have rental cars. We have flights. You're right. Where we're mobilizing 15, 20 people for events, six of which are based here. You know, other guys are flying in. We're handling stuff for some of the drivers and the family and so forth. I'm telling you, she had a spreadsheet for the rooming matrix. We had the per diem. We had everything. That I, I would get a, I would get an email with 17 different Excel spreadsheets on it. This is where everyone's going. This is what's happening. This is what he's saying. This is where this so-and-so plane's coming from here and landing here after being there. And, like, I would have everything. And it was like, it was, I'm like, she didn't break a sweat doing it. I'm like, how do you do that? I know. Like, it, was, right. it was amazing. It was, yeah. it was a really good team. I mean, it's, uh, you know, we still co-parent quite well, but the, the business thing, it's just the money wasn't there to be able to keep it going like that. And uh, it, it, it was it was fun. But so, yeah, now I, you know, I, I, I like my time between races, tinkering in the shop myself. I'm not sitting at a desk. If I feel like taking a bike ride in the morning before I come to the shop, I do. Um, there you go. When I'm on the road, it's dictated to me. I mean, we're, you know, we're at the track at 530 in the morning sometimes. Sometimes we crash two cars in the last session and we're there until two in the morning. It's just what it is. And I enjoy that. Yeah, like I, yeah. I, I thoroughly enjoy that. Uh, uh, you know, just just doing whatever it takes, and it's, it's satisfying to me, and I just really enjoy doing that. And you know, when I go to jump in and help the guys fix the car, it's, it's what you do. Yes, the, the, what what you just described. <laughs> I've kind of worked with a couple of engineers at Volvo that babysat me in the exact same way. So I'm just <laughs> pounding ideas at them just constantly. <laughs> Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? And they, they got. Got a guy down a power train, and I feel sorry for him. He's just doing math all day. I send him shit from the road, and he is—he comes back. I, I don't know how you did this, but you were right on the money. But yeah, we should be. It is, it is nuts. So, so no, I, I hear you, man. It's just uh, I, one of the engineers told me. He said, "Listen," he said, "the best engineers in the world are nothing without." the kind of feedback that you know the shiny object guys like us provide yeah. uh, if, if yeah. somebody's not out there thinking outside the box pushing the limits and you know providing that type of feedback to an engineer that kind of has tunnel vision just by definition an engineer is only looking at a, a known set of facts that are known at that time and they have a very difficult time you know even beginning to think outside the box very intelligent very smart guys you know their pedigree just crazy PhDs, double PhDs, and, and these guys that I work with up there, and you start pushing this out-of-the-box stuff to them, and at first, they were apprehensive, I mean, very apprehensive, and then they started tearing it apart, and uh, that's basically how we got ITOR, you know, I'm, I'm telling them, guys, we need to do this, and, you know, they didn't understand why in the real world their, their view of things was, was too narrow. And once they kind of opened up the view, now they're just running wild with it. They get it. You know what I mean? And, and they're, they're really, really making great strides with shift logics and how the engine should, should, uh, the power curve should look and, and all kinds of things. And, you know, that's stuff I could never do. I'm not an engineer, but, uh, the base concept, um, is there in place now. So now the engineering staff can work on it and I can keep, 
you know, pushing ideas out to them uh, to fine tune things. And it, it works really well. But uh, I'm exactly with you guys. There's no way in hell I'd be organized enough to do that stuff on my own. It just would never uh, happen. Here's a simple example of how much work I put into something and then blow it because I didn't handle the details. So here's another lesson from the garden. Here's how I approach gardening. <laughs> I'll take one plant whatever it is, a tomato, a potato, a cannabis, whatever. I'll take one plant, and this year, I'll grow that plant five different ways. I'll start one in this kind of a seed cup with this soil and then move it out to this kind of container or in this spot. Or So I have five different ways going on to, to grow the same plant so I can learn what's the best way to grow this plant. The problem is, at the end of the season, I find I'm looking at this one plant going, wow, look at that one. That one's beautiful. It produced twice. But I don't remember what I did because I'm too unorganized <laughs> to keep track of all that stuff. So I'm like, I know I learned something here, but what the hell did I learn? There, something was better, but I forgot what it was. <laughs> I know you've done that cooking too because I've done that. Something comes out of the oven, it was great. What the hell did I just do to make that happen? So, yeah, exactly. Uh, Oh, my. That's funny. We have, uh, you know, with the human interaction with what I do, uh, you know, I have mechanic. I'll call changes on a car. I call myself an engineer. I'm not, I'm self hot. I'm not a, you know, I I tell people I'm a mechanic on that. But. You know, I I have a knack for making those things go fast. And you'll get these, you know, rarely do we find someone with a PhD in our business, but they're out there floating around. But these, some of these, you know, the guys with the big education will just be about numbers. They'll look at data, they'll just be numbers, no field, never even look at a tire or climb under the car or anything just to see what's going on with it. And it's really interesting. And they're usually not that successful. They really aren't. And they get this, this tunnel vision where it's just about the numbers and nothing else matters, and it's really difficult. Now, the big, big teams have those guys just in the background crunching numbers, and then they have guys like me, and they right. have yeah. everything in between. That's why they're the big work, teams. And they're the guy crunching the numbers. <laughs> yeah, so they'll, they'll be there, you know, telling you why what you did worked, you know, and, and me, I'll be you know, pulling out from my personal database of, uh, of, of other experiences. It's funny, but you say about growing the things five different ways. We do... You know, when I let's, let's say like like the alignment on your truck is what I'd call a setup on a race car, yeah. And it, it includes the alignment. It also includes the aerodynamic settings and ride height settings, and and you know, there's a whole you know. And again, it's a very complicated Excel spreadsheet that I built that I actually enjoy. But it, it's you know, I can tell you, you know, if I change the spring exactly how much force it, it changed at the wheel at a certain wheel travel because those, those things are progressive or digressive depending on the car. So it's it's really interesting stuff and it's fun, but I'm in the trailer looking at data, talking to a driver, and I'll send the sheet out to the guys under the tent and say, hey, put this on the car. And sometimes it goes a different direction than I wanted it to, right? Yeah. And the car goes up and goes really fast. Um, and, and I don't have, I, you know, I guess everyone has some ego, but I, I try not to have much ego. But that doesn't bother me. I, I've had engineers who have made a mistake, sent it out to the, the mechanic, the mechanic did it wrong. The car went really fast, but it wasn't what the guy wanted, and he's pissed. So oh. to me, I do what's called a set down. So the setup, which is all the, all the you know adjustments going on to the car, the set down happens at the shop when we get back. So the guys will pull the car into the shop. They put it on the setup pad, put it on the scales, strings around it, check everything. And, and we find that, oh man, I was supposed to go up three on the back and I went down three. 
shit, John's going to be mad. <laughs> but we just won the race. Yeah, and I'll right. be like, awesome. <laughs> you know, but you know, much like your, your gardening thing, like you, you, you know, you have the different great ways of doing it and see which one works and then you have to verify at the end. And, you know, so I take those set downs and quite often when I go to that track the next time, I'm not going to put what I wanted to put on it when I made that change. That might be something I explore in a test session later. I'm going to set it up with a mistake on it because it, yeah, it, it worked. It, it worked. <laughs> results, it, numbers are great, but results are all that matter. Yeah. It, it, really, it's just right. what are the final results? And that I just need to find somebody to follow me around the garden and keep track of all this shit. So I don't <laughs> keep, I can't take notes on all of it. I know. <laughs> Uh, build you a spreadsheet. Come on. Yeah, exactly. Sheesh. <laughs> uh, but then the problem, look, I can build the spreadsheet, but I won't fill it out. That's the problem. I need somebody to fill the damn thing out. <laughs> I love building the spreadsheet. That's the fun part. The minute it's done, I'm on to the next project, though. And it, I forget that it even exists. So so this, this test then... It, the three of us are similar in a lot of ways, but we have enough differences because if we were all identical, what would be the point? Right? Why, why have three of us talking if we're all the same? We're, we're similar enough that I think we can really, you know, kind of latch on to something and dig into it, but we approach things differently in other ways. So the, the, this test, what it does, is there are nine different kind of, strengths that they identify and then the the overall idea is you take your top two it rates all nine of them for everybody you know one through nine one is the thing you're best at nine is the thing you're worst at and the idea of the book is just take the top two and now you get interesting combinations so you have this strength and this strength but you may have one of my strengths, but then something totally different. And that gives you a very different result. So when I tell you mine, you'll see that our company was built. My strengths are our company model. I mean, that's what it was built on. Then what I did was we test all of our employees. We test people before we hire them. Sometimes Um, Aaron and Lisa and I have a really really cool combination of six strengths that really work well together. And then we hire employees with certain strengths. And then we try to help them see, look, we want you to spend as much time doing this because you're good at it and, you know, ignore this or get somebody else to do it. So my two, the the words they use, you kind of have to understand. The book does a great job of explaining each one. So I am a, a influencer and a pioneer or a pioneer and an influencer. I've taken the test about four times and they always flip back and forth, but they're always my top two, no matter what. And I've, I've taken the test years apart. So it's not like you remember how you answered last time, but it's always those two. Here's what they mean. A pioneer. I have to, I would really think you two would get this one for sure, if you take the test. A pioneer is just the person who's always looking for the next best way to do something. You want the newest, the the best, the, you know, that whole idea, why do I plant something five different ways? Because I want to know the best way to do it. <laughs> and after these five, I might try five more. 
And that's what I'm always looking for. It's the best way to do something. That's basically what they call a pioneer. You know, you're going to be the first one to try the newest technology. You're going to be, you know, a beta tester, sometimes maybe even an alpha tester. I mean, you want to be right there. What's new and, and what's better? That's a pioneer. So I think all three of us are probably pretty strong in that one. The other one, it's kind of interesting that they used this word 20 years ago, and now this word has become a thing, um, influencer. Uh, that's like a thing now. Um, they were using this word 20 years ago. And basically, that's me. Um, once I figure out the best way to do something, the next thing I want to do is I want to tell somebody. I want to share it. I mean, what good is learning all this stuff if I don't share it with somebody else? So that's the idea behind an influencer. People kind of look to influencers for advice and guidance and that kind of thing. So that that's my combination. And I mean, that's what our whole business model is built on. We go find things and we found a target market, you know, people who drive trucks or own trucks and anything that they might do, I go try to find the best way to do it and then share it with them. You know, and then some people would call that a hyperactive egomania. It could be. That's right. I know. <laughs> you know, I've heard that once or twice. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I, I guess it's, I guess it's, 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 it's all how you look at it. Yeah. And again, I'm, yeah. I don't know if it's a hyperactive egomaniac. I'm, I'm, I'm almost self deprecating most of the time. <laughs> but uh, I, 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 I'm always in search of uh, new, like I, I, you know, music tastes and such like that. I, I listen to this really cool uh, uh, public radio station here in Pittsburgh. It's independent. It doesn't have a format. It's not owned by some great big basis corporation. It has a playlist, but it's only playing music to try to sell advertising. And I, I'm really into music and live music. And I, I just really enjoy different, you know, I don't want to, you, you, you wouldn't, you, I could put on a pop station. I wouldn't know a song on it. Like, I just don't know. I, you know, I might be able to pick out you know, Taylor Swift or something, but you know, I really just don't do that. And I find myself like sending people links. Hey, check this song out. Like <laughs> there's that many other things. And, and then, right. you know, when, when, when I find a new brew pub that I really like, I'm not, all my buddies know about it. And I, I find, uh, you know, and I know they don't have the same taste as mine, but I, I just have this need to share. Like, I, I don't know why or how, or what it is. It's just, it, it comes out. And, and quite often they enjoy it or they, you know, it, it, it's, it's really good. But I, you know, I just, I, I have this hunger always for, you know, seeing new places, trying, listening to new things. And, you know, I've got this little vintage hi-fi project going on at my, in my apartment. I, you know, trying like different, you know, diff, different tubes and how they affect the sound and the, the cartridge that, that, that runs on the, on the vinyl, you know, that the, the uh, that creates the electricity that's amplified when you play your vinyl and, really getting into analog stuff and I, you know it's just uh it's a slippery slope and i've probably spent more money on it than i should <laughs> but uh it's really really fun and i'm always like you know oh, i'm gonna try these you know i'm reading about different they call them interconnects and all the wiring you know the wires make a difference like it, it's it, and it, it's noticeable and you know power conditioning on the way into the system and you know sometimes the wrong power condition will actually dull the sound believe it or not and it's it's really interesting stuff and, and i have to share it Hey, listen to this. Right. And I'll make this, this minuscule change that only yeah. I could hear. And I'll be like, <laughs> <laughs> isn't that amazing? <laughs> right. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Exactly. Yeah. And they look at me with this blank stare like, I, I didn't hear any difference. Right. Just done the exact same thing with a, a set of parameters I sent to a guy. And I was all pumped up about it. I'm like, this is fucking awesome. And I send him these damn parameters and load them in the truck. And he's like, okay, what just happened? I was like, oh, man. Like, Come on. <laughs> oh, shoot. No, I, I hear you. <laughs> So I I am going to cool. I'm going to send you guys links for the book. The book is really really easy to read because the first like nine chapters are just describing the nine strengths, so you kind of understand what each one is. Then you go take the assessment and you get your report where it ranks them in order and tells you you know how to take advantage of them those kind of things. So I, I want you I want to see the results from this. I want you guys to take it. All right. Oh, yeah, this is my I have my last screen right now. Strength Finder 2.0. Is, is that where we are? Yep. Yep. Gallop. Cool. It's a Gallup awesome. service. That's you know, it, they're using your data. It, it, yeah, it's, <laughs> there's an interesting history here. The um, the original author, I think, was a big part of Gallup early on, and then I think he separated when he started doing Strength Finder. Okay. Yeah, there's an interesting history there, but there is some tie-in with Gallup. They have a similar test, and then he kind of expanded on it and, and went out and did something a little different with it. Um, read the book and, and take that. And next week, we'll, I, I'd love to see the results from both of you guys. So um, we'll talk about that. I have, yeah, another, sure. I have yeah. another homework assignment, too. Um, <laughs> we're, we're about to go off the rails here. You ready? Oh, my. Okay. Yeah, we're going off the rails. Um, well, no, I, all you need to do is write down this book. I, cause I, you, you've got to go read this book. Um, I read a lot of books, a lot. I have my whole life. I average about two books a week. Now there are times where I'll go three months without reading a book. Doesn't happen very often, but then I'll be reading a book every other day. And right now I'm kind of in that mode. This book was like, uh, I think it said the average time to read it was like 10 and a half hours. Um, I finished it in about a day and a half. Um, so I do read a lot of books. There are very few books that anymore, especially that really grab my interest and, and you know, really get me thinking the way this book did. Um, the, Name of the book is The End of the World is Just the Beginning. Um, I, I had never even heard of the guy before, but he actually um, has written like four books all on this topic. He started writing, I think his first one was back in like 2013 or 2014. Um, a lot of what he would, I, and I haven't gone back and read those books yet. I'm going to. I only read his most recent, um, which was just released in June of this year. So he's, you know, talking about current events like the Ukrainian war. I mean, it, it's really, really up to date. Um, let me go get the the uh, author's name. For some reason, I can't remember. Peter Zehan, maybe. That's what, was that what it was? I don't remember. But... The premise of this book is so out there, um, and it's about 
our whole now here's the other thing about the book i'm gonna all over the place here because um even though i have notes i keep having all these thoughts this book really got me thinking um the book the first thing i did i learned a ton about our global supply chain that's really a, a big part of the entire book is how our global supply chain works right down to crazy amounts of detail like countries that we never hear of or think of you know um chad in south africa is you know they build this piece this widget it's i learned a ton and our supply chain is ungodly complicated my god he goes through some of the stuff that it takes to build a car today and where all the parts come from and where they end up and where they get put together. And it is just insanity how complicated it is. Um, I'm still looking for, yeah, Peter Zehan, the end of the world is just the beginning. And then here's the line that really caught my attention, mapping the collapse of globalization. So, there's a couple things that I've always kind of thought, you know, were the way things work. Like, haven't we always kind of been led to believe one of our biggest problems in the world is we just have too many people? Mm -hmm. That's always been kind of out there, right? That there's just too many people. Yep. And there's only so many resources. There's a lot written on those. Zero population growth and so forth, you know, only replace yourself. Yeah. There's a whole lot of stuff written about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of like, and I've always kind of heard that, never paid much attention to it, but it kind of sort of makes sense. Um, Well, what he's talking about that's coming right now, like this isn't 40 years away. He's talking about what's going to happen in this decade, the 2020s and the 2030s and beyond. And what he's saying, The other thing that we could probably say has been a pretty clear pattern, and I expected that it would just continue, is globalization. This one world economy where we're all connected and a vehicle is one car is actually built in seven different countries with parts from 62 different countries. And I've always assumed that would just continue and we would do more of that, right? We're, we're, we're becoming more and more connected all the time, right? Right. Well, his claim is that's over. The opposite is about to happen. And it's not the problem isn't we have too many people. We don't have enough. Our, our world economies are about to start crashing because we haven't had a baby boom anywhere in the world for decades. We're running out of people to do the certain kinds of labor. You know, he maps out so, when you're this age, you're good at this kind of job and labor, and we need a lot of those people. Then when you move into your 40s, you're more adapted to this. Now, most of the world is, is reaching retirement age, and we don't have enough people to support the economies we've built. Sure, and, and we're, we're kind of seeing that just today with the unemployment numbers on the backdrop of the economy. Unemployment's like 3.6%, but, it, it, you know, a lot of people are saying we're in a recession right now. That shouldn't be. That's, that's <laughs> right. what's, that's what's but, weird about this, but that's also what makes me, this book, when you read it, as I was reading it, mm-hmm. 
I was believing everything mm-hmm. he said, even though they're they're kind of outrageous claims. I'm, I'm reading it going, yeah, he's right. When I got done, I sat down and I just really kind of thought through it. And I thought, you know, very well researched, very well written. He does not make it political at all. He doesn't try to blame it on the Democrats or the Republicans or Bush or Obama or there's zero politics in this. He just lays out data and how systems work and why it can't continue. But at the end, I thought, okay, he had me totally convinced this is just going to happen. And I thought, this could all be bullshit. He has a lot of facts, right? I get that. But you also have to make some pretty wild assumptions that those facts are going to lead to these outcomes. Now, talk about, you know, an influencer the way this guy wrote it, like I said, while I was reading the book, I was convinced this is happening. We we better go get prepared. Um, and then at the end, I'm like, yeah, well, um, it could be total bullshit. Uh, so I want you guys to read this book and then we'll talk about it. I'm going to talk about it a little more because it's yeah, it, it's um, so here's here's what he claims. Now, there's here's another reason I want other people to read this book, because I feel like I missed a big piece of something. I need to go back and read it again. And that's one of the things that makes me crazy. I hate repetition like that. But um, I, I feel like I missed something. He explains how this is going to happen. But I think I missed one step. What's going to happen because our each individual economy in all these countries are starting to crash because of this age thing? And we don't have enough young workers coming in. Um, China will be the biggest loser in all of this by far. We've been led to believe that, and I've even said it, China plays the long game, they're going to take over the world, it seems obvious. This guy says the exact opposite. China's in real trouble. The good news about this collapse that's coming, this kind of world collapse, um, the good news is, and when he explains it and you look at it, it's incredible how many advantages we have in this country. Here, here's one way I could put this. If, if, we, if the three of us were space aliens and the three of us are flying around in a you know, spaceship right now, we're, we need to find a new world. We're from someplace else in the galaxy. We're out looking for a new world. If we were looking at Earth to, to kind of take over and populate, for its resources and and a place to live. If we did the work and the research, we would pick the United States every time. Every time there are so, we have so many advantages, it's almost insane. So historically, when you look at trade routes throughout history and when those routes collapse and there's power shifts, associated with the collapse of those trade routes. So the the very first one that most historians recognize, that would be the Fertile Crescent there um, in uh, Iraq. And that was between two rivers and a fertile valley. It became this trade route. It had concentrated power. First city sprung up there. You know, for whatever reason, there was a collapse, and then it, it started that shifted, and I think it went to China for a while. They were doing some things, and there was a collapse there, and then it came to Europe, and, and now it's, it's here on, at, at the United States. So, you know, I probably 
you know, without reading, have read this book yet, I, I'm assuming that he's probably looking a lot at what has happened historically. That's exactly. When trade routes and trade collapse. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah he, absolutely. So what you just said is the, so throughout history, the trade routes have controlled who has the money and who doesn't, and it shifts. It shifted over and over and over throughout history. What his claim is, is the best time in human history for prosperity for the whole world was the time from 1980 till now. And that's kind of interesting Mm -hmm. because that's my adult life. I kind of became an adult, 1980, 1981, graduated from high school. That's been my life. And he says it's over now. Here's Mm -hmm. why. What happened, and I, I, I guess I never realized this. I don't know why we didn't learn this kind of history in school. The big change after World War II was that there was only one country in the world left with a Navy that could do anything at all, and it was the United States. Yes, you're exactly right. We had more force projections than the rest of the world combined in our naval assets. That's a, that's a hundred percent right. And we were protected from everybody else Correct. by the oceans. So that, yep. that is what really, really set us on our path of the, our naval, our, our force projection. The problem now is, is that the Chinese are actually have a bigger navy than yeah. what we do now you know what's interesting they, though? they don't have the aircraft carriers and the technology but it's you, yeah you know definitely. what's interesting and this guy i i went to verify this the chinese navy even though they had it's big it's it's horribly ineffective they don't have any ships yes. that can travel like more than 500 <laughs> miles away from china uh, yes Yes, yes, yes. You're exactly right. They don't have nuclear powered ships. They're still running on a lot of, of, of oil burners. Oh, and, 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 and uh, their technology mm-hmm. is awful. Awful. Right. They, the Russia, Russians, same way. They're, right. they're single aircraft carrier. It leaves such a smoke plume <laughs> that you can track it visually. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah. You're, you're yeah. Exactly, yeah. So, we definitely have a technology advantage. There's so here's, no doubt about that. Here's what we did, and here's what created the globalization in the world we have right now. After World War II, we became the world's police in the oceans and in shipping and said, we will protect all trade around the world with our Navy. You can ship anything you want anywhere in the world and never worry about pirates or other governments. Because you think about it, once you put a ship out on the ocean, Anybody could attack it. Remember Somalia, what was going on for a couple of years? The pirates off Somalia were just taking over ships. Hell, they made movies about it. And and we we were battleships back. All right. (laughs) We were the reason you were able to ship things all over the world safely because we protected them. Now, his claim is that's going to end. The piece I missed is I don't know what the final catalyst is that creates that piece. You know, our economies are going to start to collapse. We're already seeing it because we don't have enough people in the right ages. We, we can see that. I do understand that we are the reason there's all of this global shipping and, and why it's become so complicated. We, we created that. I'm missing the piece of what 
is the final straw that happens, then then the U.S. says, okay, we're not doing this anymore. And at that point, we start into deglobalization, and he actually ranks every country in the world just about on on how it's going to affect them. And the U.S. is the least affected at all because we have everything we need within our own country to create a prosperous world. The little bit that we might be missing, um, we can get from Canada and Mexico. And they're right here. And we will probably become really, really strong trade partners with them. And this will be the most prosperous part of the world. According to his claim, some countries will go back to living like before we had electricity. It will be that bad for them. I, that would not surprise me a bit. Um, I've watched a lot of uh, military analysis of almost what you're talking about here. And this is exactly the reason we've never been invaded. We've got everything we need. You know, we're protected by these, these huge expanses of, of ocean. So, you know, the Chinese can't march over here and leverage their kajillion man army. <laughs> right. uh, same thing with the Russians. They, right. You know, they, they like to use guys as cannon fodder, but they can't get them over here fast enough nope. in order to and- invade us. You know, they, so we're, you, you are exactly right, I think. If, if what he's saying happens and there's deglobalization, we, um, the, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're the place to be, no the, doubt. The three and, things thing that will drive it aside. Oh, the three things you need for a prosperous country, um, water, food, and energy. We, we blow almost everybody away around the world on all three. We have more fertile farmland than anywhere else in the world. We have more good, clean access to water rivers, the the fact that we can move things around within rivers. And uh, we have uh, if if as we start to make a change to solar and wind, which he covers a lot in this book, it's not happening anytime soon. Um, we'll have those things, but they're not even going to come close to replacing fossil fuels. Probably not ever. Uh, but when we start to make that change. We also are like second in the world for wind and sun. Australia is the only one that could produce Mm -hmm. more um, wind and solar power than the U.S. It's like we have every possible advantage. It's almost insane how much advantage we have in in a world if we stop all the shipping and globalization it's pretty incredible. I, like I said, the book could be total bullshit. None of this could ever happen. I don't know because there's a lot of variables out there. But it's it's he lays it out so well. Um, it, it, like I said, he's not talking about 30 years from now. He's talking about this is happening. It's starting right now. We will be severely affected by it for the next two decades. I, I Yeah, I, I could see all that. I, I mean... I kind of believe what you're talking about here just because it's happened historically multiple times. This would be nothing new in the history of the earth. So, you know, history tends to repeat itself. So this, this would not be shocking to me at all. I mean, it'll be cyclical and it may go back in a hundred years the other way. But Kevin, I don't know. I I, I just downloaded the book. I I have to drive to India on Sunday. So I'll listen to it on my way out. Oh, good. Good attempt. To me, to me, the way I look at globalization and as uh, why it happens, not just happening, it's just profit. 
if it's cheaper to get the bits and pieces to make that car <laughs> here, there, everywhere, you're going to do it. And the profits are going to go up. It, it, yep. It's a part of the, you know, what I feel is a problem with our economy, the fact that the stock market controls everything, which to me is just a few rich people, in my, my opinion. I don't have a 401k. I don't have any of that stuff. Yeah, I don't, I don't care. You know, I, I, I work on, yeah, I wish I did, but you know, <laughs> I'll get to right. the point a little bit on my hey. back leg. Hey. But, I, I, but to me, it's just a profit above all motive that does it. Right? Know. So once it starts making sense to make this stuff here again, we're going to. It's just the way it's going to work. You know, maybe it's all I don't mean to interrupt you, but I got to get this thought out before because yeah. my mind's going 100 miles an yeah, hour. You came to the, same, <laughs> to the same conclusion I think I did. And I think it's why I liked this. I, I'm reading. I'm actually reading four books right now that are all topics that are hard for me to get my head around. I can't believe I'm trying to read four at the same time. I'm reading The Creature from Jekyll <laughs> Island, which is all about the Fed and the gold standard. Um, that might be the problem, Kevin. I know the fact that you try to read four books at once, you know, one at a time. Yeah. I, I know. So I'm going to have to go back and read them all again because I'm making myself crazy. But I'm also reading one called the uh, the moral case for fossil fuels. Why we absolutely should not mm-hmm. give up on fossil fuels. It would be insane. But I'm reading all these at the same time. But one of the things that came to me is what you just said, John. You know, when we talk about the Fed or the gold standard or half this stuff, you always start thinking these big conspiracy theories, right? Oh my God, Bill Gates is trying to depopulate the world. And um, and once, once it goes there, I lose all interest. I, I can't get my head around shit like that. But I think, what if... What if there is no big conspiracy theory? It simply is a bunch of people just chasing money. I, I have a feeling that's all most of this stuff really is. Yeah, it absolutely uh, is. I, I would agree. Yeah. 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 yeah it absolutely is. And, and you know, so I think one of the. Grew up, growing up here in Pittsburgh ahead, and watching the, watching the dogs, the jobs go south. And then they went, you know, so the, you know, U.S. still moved everybody to Birmingham and some of the and Westinghouse went to Charlotte. And the town I'm in is a Westinghouse town. There's the Trafford is a big, there was, they, they built transformers here, uh, right down the Valley. They built all the, all the rotating apparatus for power plants and such. And it was, it was all Westinghouse. And so in the seventies or early eighties, when they all went South to bust the unions, um, you know, and again, that was profit driven. It wasn't like they weren't making money. It wasn't like the unions were putting them out of business. There were people in Pittsburgh having really good lives and the, you know, they, you like to vilify the unions, but, the majority of those guys work their asses off. My, my grandfather was a union shop steward at, at LRA, uh, which is Westinghouse large rotating apparatus and started off as a welder, you know, and then he moved his way up and he was a foreman and, you know, he did a lot of those negotiations. And those guys worked hard and they made a good living and they were able to, you know, have a, have a nice suburban house and send their kids to college without a pile of debt. And, you know, the kids grew up to, to you know, be, be baby boomers who were spoiled, but it was just a whole, it was an interesting way of life that I watched end. I was young, but I saw it end. I saw it go away. Right. And like this town that I'm in now here, Trafford is, it's, it's a shell of what it was. I mean, it was a, you know, it's a town of 3000 people, but you know, there were, there were 7,000 people who worked here or something. It's crazy. Uh, and only 3000 lived here. So, but it was interesting to see that all go away. And then it goes even farther away again, more profit, more profit, more profit. So, so it's okay. We'll just do it in China now. You know, Westinghouse. We're you know we're done making washing machines in the in, in the Carolinas. We're going to go to China, and again, their profits go up. Their profits go up, 
and it, it, it kind of drives me crazy, but it makes sense. There's, there's no conspiracy theory. It's right. like you do the math. It's legal. It works. So, it's well, and, 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 and wait a minute. It is. Don't, it, is, <laughs> isn't that basically what all three of us spend all of our time doing? I, I don't know why I like to have a separation between tiny micro-businessmen like us and them. But oh, no, I, I, do. I, I don't I, know why I, I, I draw a line. No, I, I get it. I, I, I love small yeah. business. Big business drives me crazy. I, and how do you square that as a capitalist? Because without big business, you don't have things like cars and iPhones. Right. There are some oh, things oh, that only the- only big business is going to create, but I think we got way out of whack. Too much big business, not enough small business. And I, I hope the shift, and it looks like it, if, if you look at what he's predicting, the shift will drive us back to more small business, more custom-made, much more local. And if it happens all over the world, what he's claiming, and, and, and like I said, it's so well-written, you look at it and you go, yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen. Without this global, and he goes through all the things you were just talking about, John, how textiles moved from this area to this area, how cars moved from this part of the world to this part of the world, how, you know, uh, chips, computer chips and motherboards are all built here now. I mean, he even breaks it down to where low-end computer chips are made in China. China doesn't know how to make anything other than low-end garbage chips. They can't even make mid-level. And then how there are certain parts of the world where the crazy high-end chips are made. Guess what? Most of the high-end, more complicated stuff ends up here in the U.S. Taiwan. Well, Taiwan, yeah. there are a couple Asian countries that do it. Yes. But it, it is they can only do it because of all the interconnectedness they have in Asia itself. When this starts to fall apart, those countries won't have the resources anymore. They'll lose some of those industries. So I I don't know that we should call this a collapse or falling apart. I think what truly is happening here, so now we have the internet. People can see what's going on on the other side of the world. You have people that were willing to work for nothing because they just could not imagine having anything else. Right. As right. they learn and understand that they're, they're, they're worth something, then that trade route goes to hell. The business can't come in and exploit those people that just don't understand. So we're going to see that happen in China. You know, as, as more people are, are on the web and they're seeing, wow, look how them people are living. I want some of that. This is going to happen all by itself. It, it's actually information that's driving these trade route collapses, I think, personally. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, as people get smarter and they understand yeah. this is what I'm worth, uh, you're going to pay me this or I'm not doing anything. Um, yeah, I, I, we're, we're going to see we're going to see a realignment, no doubt. I, I think you're yeah. right. The problem is if in his prediction, most of the world ends up far worse off than where we are now. They will be back to, you won't be able to get $2 an hour. There won't even be jobs in some of these countries because they won't have the the resources without the shipping to be able to do much of anything. John, your example of like um, textiles, you know, how things shifted and moved and then they moved again. He lays that out really well. Textiles, actually, clothing, that's like the first place for an emerging country to start. 
it requires very little of anything. So it, it's kind of like the first foothold. If there's some new developing country, that's where the textiles will go next. That, that will be the cheapest place to make them. And that's how almost every country has been able to start to build their industrial base. Around textiles. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then as countries progress, they get more and more into more complicated manufacturing. And, you know, then he lays out, you know, the countries that can handle more complicated. It, it is, it's fascinating what I learned about the, um, our, our global supply chain. The one thing I had never thought of, he actually just does a couple pages on how we used to ship goods. You know, it used to be we had, and you talk about unions at the ports. That was a big thing. They used to handle everything on pallets, like mm-hmm. one at a time, <laughs> unloading pallets off ships <laughs> and, and moving them around on docks near the water. And, and then the, the creation of containers and container ships, it changed everything. Sure. And and that's new. I think the first yeah. container ship on a permanent route was happened in like 1980 something. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I um, can't remember the name of the company, but I think that's exactly 79 or 80 is, is when that that started. But that, that kind of makes you wonder, you know, how many people kind of really have a grasp of this. And maybe that's why we got some of the goofy trade deals we have that, you know, keep some of these other areas of the world afloat. You know what I mean? It just, it, it, some of this stuff just doesn't make any sense. And you just kind of wonder, is that what this was designed to do to, to, uh, you know, keep certain countries out of, you know, the, the conditions of poverty like that, because one way or another, I mean, we're, we end up supporting everybody. It seems like whether we're handing them cash or that they're actually working and doing something, and sending it back here. It just, yeah. it's just the way it goes. And again, a lot of this isn't necessarily because maybe we're morally more correct than somebody else. It's just because we're in an area that is unique in terms of natural resources and energy. That, it, it's all right here. That, that's what it's yeah. looking more and more like. Now, you, you could clearly say our founding fathers and the Constitution and all the freedoms, and it was a good setup. There's no doubt. And that did contribute sure. to how fast our country was able to grow and, and do up. But, you know, our ego about, look, we, we created the greatest civilization in the history. We're so smart. It, no, we just got lucky. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that. I mean, it was well. Just, here, just, just think about this. After World War II, right? The rest of the industry, anyone who could make anything and do anything that we had to compete with was blown up. So, right. of course, we made cars for the whole world. We made that was an unrealistic time. You can't go back to that. Right. right? You just can't. That era from you know nineteen you know, 46 to 1968 or 70 or something. I don't think we really had to start competing until the mid seventies, to be honest with you. So there was a whole, you know, almost 30 year period there where we dominated economically. You, you know what else we did during that time? What else? We created a lot of babies. Oh yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of the point here. That that's why that's a big yep. part of why we were yeah. so prosperous. We had people, human capital. Yep. That's yeah. That definitely helped. Yeah, and it will. I mean, it's uh, 
I guess, you know, we've done all right population-wise, I suppose, here in the States, right? And then, oh, no, and we're... still a ton of people want to be here. Oh, or we have well, gone down. I haven't, I haven't paid attention. Well, we're doing okay. And now you think maybe we should start importing a lot more people. We should be more careful about it. Um, you know, we should be a, we should be a little pickier about it, but we should go back to, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking we should start some really aggressive policies to start bringing more people into this country. I don't have a problem with that at all if we do it right. Yeah, but again, it, it, we've made it difficult for some reason. I, I think they need to work on on some of some of the rules around. Absolutely. It, yeah, I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. And I, I I actually I had the illegals working for me. If you want to use the term illegals, which I don't 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 agree, but they, I had a couple of French Canadians that were fantastic race mechanics. So I ended up getting papers for. It. But the interesting thing about most of these undocumented is they get a job. They want to work. They want to send yeah. money home to wherever they are. They want to get their family here eventually. I, I've got a lot of experience in my time I spent in Colorado working with them. Uh, some of the best people I've ever met. Like, unbelievable. And then they'd be yelled at and called illegals right now. But the fact of the matter is there was some big company or some rich guy giving them a job when they got here. They were sending all their money home. They weren't here sucking off the feet of the system. And they paid taxes. Anyone could get a temporary social security number. You could go to, you could walk in. They don't care how you get here. You can go to work for somebody. They will. The government will find a way to take some of their money, and they'll get nothing for it. They get sent back. You know, so it's it's uh, it's it's interesting. I, I that that argument. I you know only because of personal experience, and you know my my family were you know they were they were they were immigrants. They they came here to work in the mills and on the railroad, and it was just it, it's needed. I think yeah. we need them again. I mean, there are jobs out there. I don't want my kids doing. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's, that's, that's fine. Let's let someone who's trying to make it make a life for themselves and the state to do that job and and you know so, what so I, I think where we've gone wrong is when we look at people and say oh my god they shouldn't have to start their working at that wage that's ridiculous everybody needs to get a live at that bullshit the whole living wage thing every one of us remembers a time when we're so hungry we would have gone to work for anything just give me a chance just give me a job pay me something so i can get by and i'll i'll work up from there that there's nothing wrong with that that's it that's a much better system we should not be giving things to people all of us should have to work from the bottom up yeah i don't get what doesn't seem to be much doesn't seem to be much here. I recently read an article that a GM factory worker in Mexico building Chevy pickup trucks that everybody waves their their their, their American flag off the back of uh, because 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 it, because it helps uh, GM's profits because it's got Those a bow tie Mexicans in the front of that it. thing are making like 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 three like three fifty a day or something not three hundred and fifty like three dollars and fifty cents it's crazy like they they don't pay them anything. It, it's oh, not. Hey, I would rather buy a Toyota that was built in the states okay. by 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 some union guys that are actually making a real living. And I don't give a flying whatever where the profits go. That doesn't mean 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 anything to me. I would much rather buy a vehicle that was where, actually built here, where the jobs are. Where are the better where paying jobs? Job? Where are we creating better paying jobs? And and spend again, you spend your the, money on on yeah. The, this book does a good job of. One of the things we probably could have done better, and it's too late now, and if he's right, we're going to reset all of this anyway, but it's not that it was horrible that these countries made such low wages in the beginning. I mean, maybe it could be better. I think all you have to do is give people the opportunity to keep improving. 
to keep making their situation better. And that's where we've made the mistake. You know, $3 a day was much better than they've ever made before. And we believe that. It wasn't a day. It's an hour. uh, Yeah. They make three bucks an hour. So GM, as of May 16th, 2022, uh, GM factory workers got a raise from $3 to 325 an hour. Yeah. So, it, it's not that that in and of itself is horrible if their only opportunity before that was to either make nothing or to make less. This is an improvement. The problem is we have to keep giving people a path to keep improving and not just take advantage of the fact that, well, you could only make 50 cents an hour before we're paying you six times that you should be happy for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's interesting. Three dollars an hour. Yeah. So um, I want you guys to read this book this week. So uh, because it, like I said, it's it's, it's, uh, some crazy stuff, but you look at what's already happening, what's already happened. And you see, no, this guy's laid out a pretty good argument that this, like I said, it's, when is that one thing and what is the one thing that's going to occur that we stop protecting all of this global shipping? It won't be one thing. It's going to be multiple different things that happen. Um, Again, look at it in a historical context. There's never been one event that has toppled a trade route or a trade center. It's always multiple things, and, and, and it most likely will be so again. So I doubt that you're going to be able to just kind of take this thousand-foot view of everything and say, oh, here it comes right there's the event that's going to do this. It, it's not going to work that way. Yeah. There could yeah, be a tipping point, though. I mean, have either of you read the Gladwell book? There will be a, it's a tipping, there point. Will be a tipping oh, point. There's yeah. I love those books, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. no doubt there will be a tipping point, but to identify one particular event that's going to spur it all, I don't think that's going to happen. Actually, you know, it's kind of interesting because, like I said, he started writing these books. There's four of them, but they're all built around the same kind of concept about this globalization. Um, The first one, I think, was in 2014. The last one he just finished in June, he actually points out how the whole COVID-19 may have been one of the catalysts, kind of the tipping point. We, we shut down well, our, <laughs> our global shipping and it's, it's, yeah. we're finding it's hard yeah. to get it started again. Plague is historically one of the bigger factors that change trade routes. There is, there is no doubt that has happened multiple times as well. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, that, that could be a catalyst for it. And again, you know, we think that, oh, this COVID-19, it's something new and we've never dealt with this. It has happened multiple over and times over and over throughout yeah. the history. That's exactly right. And, and so I think, I'm really, really going to get my hands on this thing and read this thing because, you know, just from what I love to look at history and things in a historical context, you know, he, what he's describing is, has happened multiple times already. So you very know, like, interesting. Like I said, it's so well researched, so well written. I honestly, throughout the whole book, I could not even begin to tell you what this guy's politics would be. And I know we kind of throw that into everything now. And I kind of read with an eye like that. You know, what is what is this guy's take on all this? You get nothing. Zero. At the very end, the last chapter, he kind of talks about his politics a little bit. And I can tell you this, him and I would probably agree on almost nothing politically. 
I, I, he, he, but I, I didn't get that out of this book at all. I mean, he didn't make anything political, not blaming a party, a person. Um, it, it was just so at the end, again, I came back to this thing like, wow, it's so well written. It makes so much sense. He uses so many good historical examples of, you know, it happened like this. Here's why it's going to happen like this again. And then at the end, I say, or it could just all be bullshit. And none of this is going to happen. If nothing else, somebody should take this concept and write a really good novel because I think it would be an awesome book. (laughs) (laughs) Of it actually happening. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody write the next 30 years of what this is going to look like. Write it in a novel because I think it'd be an, an awesome book. But uh, uh, I'm going to look forward to next week. I want to hear what um, what you guys think after you read it. Awesome. All right. So uh, in all this time, um, we've been chatting away. We actually have one call. So... Uh, I'm going to take this call. Phone lines are wide open. Um, I don't have much more to talk. Well, I probably have a ton of things to talk about today, but uh, <laughs> I think I've talked. Oh, the one thing I thought was uh, pretty interesting, I don't want to get too political or too much into the news, but I wanted to throw this out there. Did anybody see the uh, the farmers um, protesting in the Netherlands? Yeah. No. I didn't see that huge protest. This is a big, big deal over there. The government of the Netherlands. Here we go with the pushing too hard on the green stuff. Um, The government of the Netherlands is going extremely green and they have told farmers they have a very short window. I forget. It's not that long. They have to cut the emissions from their farm by 50%. And basically, the the analysts are saying, you'll put most of the farmers out of business. They won't be able to do this. Um, and the farmers basically did, and they said they were inspired by the truck drivers in Canada. Um, they just took all their tractors and, and started driving down the roads. and Blocked went to the roads. Yeah, blocked roads. And, wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. They had, uh, there was one 16-year-old kid driving a tractor, and they've got video. The police are shooting at him. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's getting wow. pretty serious. That's nuts. So one of that the one that. of the things he talks about in this book is and we're already starting to see it and and then you see things like this. We are already starting to see food shortages. It's happening. I mean it's happening in this country. There's some undeveloped countries that are really struggling already uh but he talks about that's going to be the worst thing about some of this we will see food collapsing in certain areas and and when we're looking at things like this for the government to come in and think that they're going to make some big climate change impact now what the hell no we have to make sure we can feed people yeah i i I agree um that that makes a lot of sense. We're trying to regulate emissions and and where we're at in a potential adjustment. It, it, may, it may not make sense. Uh, yeah, you gotta you gotta eat in order to be around to, to notice if your efforts took any right. had any success yeah. on the climate. So, yeah. Look, yeah. Oh look! Look at how clean the air and the water is. I wish I had something to eat. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. so you think there needs to be? Again, we we have some opinions that we share on diet, obviously, 
And don't you think that maybe if the food supply was shifted around a bit uh, and changed some, that could might it be not healthier? Be a bad thing? It, it will be. I mean, it, eating it, more local. I mean, not trucking food in. Like you know, eating yeah, stuff that grows where you live. Or so saved and here's, you know, isn't there a better way than what we're there doing? is? There I, ab- I, you know, and this could absolutely be a disruption is. that causes that. Absolutely yeah. is. Yeah. The the problem I have with it is the way we're approaching it. We will get to that point where where countries like ours. Where we're so rich, we have so much food, making a shift back to more local natural food will be a huge improvement for us. The problem is the countries that need that mass-produced cheap food just to survive, they will suffer. There, there won't be a good shift for them. That, that's the problem. How do we make this shift and do the least amount of damage as we do it? There's another really interesting part about this book. He, there's a couple chapters in there about wheat. Wheat changed the world. In some ways, yeah. good. It did save humanity in some ways. We had become too successful as hunters, and we had hunted out whole areas where people were starving, and wheat, was, wheat will grow almost anywhere. Uh, and wheat is how we mm-hmm. kind of saved humans uh, our population would have decreased it well it didn't because we discovered wheat and we started eating it and it changed the entire world yeah farming a- absolutely I, I just read a book that talked about why india and china have such large populations and rice has more calories per acre than what wheat does and so they could support more people per acre and it was just really interesting it went into detail of why the the chinese and and india have this huge population and it's all because of rice the the calories per acre involved there he does talk a lot about rice too and the funny thing about rice um it's kind of interesting that we grew these two huge societies based on, like you said, they had a lot of rice. Uh, turns out rice is really, really difficult to raise. It's really finicky. It takes a lot of water. And that could be a part of the collapse. Wheat is much easier to grow. It grows in horrible conditions. Um, and, and rice, not so much. Rice is pretty finicky and takes a lot of water. And, Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, yes. so it, it's... Uh, Wheat and barley will yes. both grow just about anywhere. Right. And that's how we kind of saved, you know, a lot of people because we were able to grow wheat. But we also know all the damage wheat has done to human health. It's really kind of an interesting (laughs) conundrum. It kept us alive, um, but it's killing us slowly now. Yeah, they, they laid out that square area that it took for a hunter to subsist. Right. And it took like a... 16 mile square area and (laughs) uh, you could feed a family or 10 people on less than a quarter of an acre when you started the farm and, and you done grain and cereals and stuff. So, but they also noted that when we did shift the farming, that the average height went from about six foot two to five foot three and general health overall declined and life expectancy of a farmer was actually shorter than the the hunter gatherer by about 10 years. Yeah. So, so John, like you were saying that that in carnivore code, didn't he? 
It, yeah, a little bit. A, a shift back yeah. to, you know, more local food production. And in a lot of these countries, here's another thing, though. It's shocking how few parts of the world are really well suited to grow stuff. Again, we're really, really fortunate. We have incredible amounts of fertile farmland here, and that's not normal. That's not common around the world at all. Yeah, when you look at, just look at Russia, how much of it's tillable? Not much. You know, it's a huge country, but yeah, there's not not much that's tillable at all there. Same with China. And uh, one of the reasons, Right. One of the reasons why I think the Russians really like the idea of having Ukraine, because they're one of the few places in Europe that has a whole lot of fertile farmland. I think they have the most fertile farmland in in that area by far. Ukraine does. That's absolutely correct. Yeah, he talks about all of that stuff in this book. Like I said, incredible book, really well-researched, really well-written. I learned a a ton about, you know, our global supply chain and what countries produce what and why that happened. And uh, it's really just uh, interesting stuff. Let's, uh, Let's grab a couple phone calls. Let's go to New Mexico. Don, welcome to the program. Morning, Kevin. Hey, John, Joel. How you guys doing? Good. How are you? Great. Excellent. I uh, sent over an oil sample, Kevin. I'm looking and then at it here. Your mileage report. All right. So, uh, looking at a DD15. Does this only have a hundred and thirty some thousand miles on it? Correct. Year old truck. Okay, and there's 66,000 on the oil that's in it right now, correct? Correct. You know, they they flagged an awful lot of stuff here, but honestly, none of it really matters. I mean, even though all this stuff is flagged, the wear metals are just building up over time. You got 66,000 miles on the oil, and we're still in the first hundred some thousand miles of the engine's life. You tend to see some of those early wear metals and they'll build up a little bit. So I'm not seeing anything in the wear metals that really concerns me. Um, no fuel dilution. And I'm using catalyst. Yeah, and that's why the iron's a little higher than I would expect. But um, you have some potassium, but no sodium. So there's no coolant leak. They flagged molly and boron and magnesium. Those are all additives. So you can just ignore those completely. Um, the base they flagged, but it's at 3.4. Hell, today, that's a good number. That's they fine. really need to change the way they they flag a base. And they flagged oxidation at 22. I, like I said, they flagged an awful lot of things. I don't think anything here is any concern at all. <clears throat> okay. Cool. Well, then, uh, I do have a fuel mileage report on this truck. Um Preface it by John. You remember the uh, teal-colored DD15 Cascadia with the Dorothy? Remember that truck? Yep, yep. I remember clearly. Yeah, yep. <clears throat> yeah. Lifetime on that was seven point five. Lifetime on this truck for thirteen months is eight point six. Thirty day is nine point zero six. And that I. And that includes the fuel used by my 8K Onan generator. Hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. Because I I can't 
pull that off because it sucks it out of my tanks. <laughs> you know. So yeah. we we estimate point three to point four gallons an hour on the generator. <clears throat> but I, I chalk everything up to a lot of research. Uh, following uh, Henry Albert's advice, uh, we got a direct drive transmission in two sixteen gears running on wide singles. And you have the aero package. Does it have the? Is it CF? Is it what they No, the CTF. What do they call the uh, Evo? I think. Yeah. Well, the, this is a this is a Western Star, John. Oh, it's Western Star. Oh, great. Nice. That's neat. 50, yeah. 50, 57 hundred with a custom bolt sleeper on it. Oh, nice. So okay. it's not That's a like box. It's aerodynamic. Yeah. Yep. Well, good but, results. Uh, That's cool. Yeah. So. I don't follow, but I'm starting to see some good numbers. I mentioned this on the show a few few shows ago, but the the DD15s are starting to really pick it up. Are they just starting to finally spec them correctly? Is that becoming easier to buy that spec now? Uh, yeah, I think that's happening. I, I think you're seeing more of them spec better. I, I, I had some challenges when specking this truck. The uh, dealer had to keep calling the engineers to say, "Can we do this?" And of course, they'd come back and say, "Yeah, we can do that." You know. Um, <laughs> And, you know, in fact, the dealer hadn't even heard of a downsped motor uh, <laughs> when I started specking this at the end of 2020. So we're looking at, uh, you know, a 400 horse uh, peak torque uh, at uh, 1750 at uh, 975 RPM. I yep. cruise 60 to 60 or 58 to 62, and I'm right at the 1100 range at 60 miles an hour. Nice. So, yeah. Yeah, that's impressive. Yeah, it is. It sounds about right where you want to be with that, yeah. Yeah, that's right on, yeah. Yeah, that, that 219 with the DT12 Direct is a nice package. I mean, Henry ran that for years before I heard of anybody else even getting one. Uh, yeah. That's, 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 that's a good combo. <clears throat> yeah, now all I got to do is uh, go over and have it dynoed and maybe throw a tune on it get a little more efficient. So let me ask you something on, on the, the idea behind the tune. What do you think that's going to do to improve the efficiency? Um, experience from the last truck, the uh, 2010 ED15, uh, <clears throat> which was a, uh, it dynoed out at uh, 434 and, uh, when we kicked it up to, uh, it was 550 to the ground. And uh, my fuel mileage went from an average of 7.1 to uh, hovering right around 7.7. So how was that truck geared? Uh, that was a 13-speed manual with... Uh, 342 gears. Okay, something for you to think about here. Um, okay. You're in a traditionally geared truck in the past, and this is where I think you can make an argument for horsepower and tuning to improve fuel efficiency because essentially what you have, you have a truck that's gear bound. You can only really run in the top two overdrives really essentially at highway speed. So you're dividing torque in that transmission in both of those overdrive gears 
and you're trying to keep the truck moving down the road. So if you think about this horsepower and extra torque start to make a lot of sense to keep that thing in those overdrive gears to keep the RPM low. Because remember, when we're talking about downsped, we're talking about keeping that piston speed low. And as you bring RPM up, you're no longer downsped. So essentially in the past, putting a tune into a truck with traditional gearing, you were essentially downspeeding that truck in a sense because you were able to keep it in overdrive longer before you had to downshift. With your 216 Direct, you have two gears available at highway speed. So now you're going to optimize through gearing, not necessarily horsepower. And you have to be very careful. And, and John's going to know more about the tuning part of it. And, and I, I have a hard time getting my head around this, understanding what's happening to that power curve. If you're making, you go from 400 to 500 horsepower, but that horsepower doesn't come on till 15 or 1600 RPM, you're never going to use it. Not in a downsped truck, not geared the way you are. So that horsepower and torque has to be available at that 1100 or 1000 RPM rather than being available at, you know, 15 or 1600. So if you have a 400 1750 now and say you go to a, a 500 1950 or 2000 pound feet of torque, you know, we know what the formula for horsepower is and it's pretty easy to see where that horsepower is going to start to come in on the on the curve. You want to make sure that the horsepower and torque is at the lower end of the spectrum. The stuff out at that high end is completely meaningless in a truck that's geared like yours. This is why the factory generally will not take a 600 horsepower engine and give you a direct drive 216 because you'll never get to that horsepower. You're running too low in the RPM range. So you, you need to understand where that horsepower and torque is coming in in order to make that work. Um, we went from four and a quarters to 455s. Uh, we bumped horsepower up a little bit uh, on the Volvo side, but we made sure that all that extra horsepower and torque came in between 850 and 1100 RPM essentially the exact same curve, you know, once, once we get past there. So with the, with the way that you're geared, you really want to make sure if you're going to have something tuned that everything is happening at low RPM to get the full advantage out of it. Well, got it, Joel, that's, that's exactly what it'll do. I, I know Leroy has been working pretty hard on the CD 15 stuff, but he's sharp enough to, uh, okay. Nothing, I, nothing against anybody else who was there, but He'll bump the torque curve. So he'll he'll work the timing. He'll work the timing curves. He'll work the fuel curve to 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 probably lower lower the peak torque a little bit. Whether they can actually measure that on the dyno there or not is another story. But uh, Leroy is he's sharp enough that he'll uh, yeah he's he'll be he'll be onto that. Um, he's yeah. actually coming to my shop awesome. tomorrow to help me tune a Viper. But uh, it, it's uh, yeah. So he could make a difference. So I'll I'll be curious to see how it goes. Um, uh, they don't have a whole lot of experience, and, and you're absolutely correct about the traditionally geared trucks and the ability to uh, maybe find some fuel mileage with with, with uh, tuning. But again, torque is the only thing you could really change, right? That horsepower is calculated. So if you run it up high, mm-hmm. like if you if you took if you ran the ran yours hard enough, like uh, say your your engine only makes 450 horsepower, but it produces torque like a 600 horsepower engine, though, right? So you sure. you'd have to have a traditional engine that made 600 horsepower to see the torque numbers that yours does. And yours does it sooner, which is why the horsepower number is lower because it's just a factor of RPM. Sure, right, so, right, absolutely, yeah, so, absolutely. So, so that's it. Yeah, just, so it doesn't, you know. 
So well, what he'll do is get, he'll be able to reshape that torque curve a little bit with his tuning, and you, you may very well see an increase. And if Detroit's got it optimized well enough, you may not. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see your numbers after the uh, after the tune. Yeah, it just you just don't want to get into the situation where you're chasing big horsepower and it's way north on the curve. It's it's going to do you very very little at that point. And uh, right. So yeah, if if they got a really good understanding that hey, what we're trying to do here is keep this truck in direct drive, and even really with two one six at your speeds you're talking about, your underdrive with torque multiplication is is relatively available at highway speed. So, you know, as long as the guy tuning the truck understands that and has that all in mind, yeah, I think it'd be real, real interesting to see, to see what happens at, at that point. But, uh, um, yeah, just don't, don't get hung up on the actual horsepower number itself. So just, yeah. yeah, interesting. It, I agree with John. I got to hang out with, uh, Leroy quite a bit when I was there and he, he's really, he's got this dialed in. He understands it. He's getting better and better at it all the time. Good. So I think we're going to see some interesting stuff out of that. Let's go to, uh, Chicago. Fred, welcome to the program. Thanks guys. Great show. I love it every week. Um, Joel had a question for you. At one point you had a six by two with, 231 rears and tall rubber. And I think mm-hmm. the whole concept was to get it down in the 190s with short rubbers without changing everything. I was wondering whatever happened to that. Um, it's setting down in Greensboro, having some major updates done to it. I was supposed to have it back six months ago, but supply chain <laughs> oh, stuff is, has delayed everything. <laughs> so it's. Uh. It's 95% back together. Um, they've actually done a lot of testing with it and, and have run it around. When it gets back to the yard, I'm actually going to pull that 231 and the tall rubber off. I've got another Super Lab 2.16 to throw in there and then get it back on standard rubber and, and to work a little bit better with the shift logic we've got going on. And I also think I'm going to re-ratio... I think I'm not sure yet, but I think I'm going to re-ratio the my purple one to 2.05 um, with the overdrive. So uh, we're going to push it. I don't know that I can get to 1.95, and I think that's as fast that's available. That will work with direct drive, no doubt. Um, but I don't think it'll work with over. It'd just be too fast. I mean, I don't think you would get uh, overdrive gear till about 90 mile an hour with a 195. So. Um, I think 205 is going to be going to be as aggressive as you can get with an overdrive transmission. Thanks, Joe. That actually was my question. I was wondering because you were talking at the time that that gear ratio would end up in the 190s, and I was thinking, man, what would happen if you got down that low? Yeah, it, it's uh, it, it's it's right in that area, no doubt. Um, it, it it worked um, fairly well. Uh, I didn't have the shift logic that I needed at the time. Um, there were also have been major upgrades to the, the gen two, uh, TC engine that really widened out the, uh, the, um, the sweet spot in it. So, uh, you know, now I'm efficient from essentially 900 RPM to 1350, where before I was efficient from, you know, 900 to about 1150, so I've got a much broader sweet spot that 
the whole key to this is being able to use them lower gears in the train. Everybody thinks in terms of getting it in the big hole and keeping it there. And you know, they, they'll laugh at you if you said, Oh, my truck downshifted. Well, that's what we want it to do. We want to take advantage <laughs> of the direct drive and the underdrive when it makes sense to do so. And when okay. we run these aggressive gears, that allows us to really um, adapt to situations with gearing rather than just brute horsepower. Hey, Joel, mm-hmm. isn't it, isn't it kind of ironic that uh, it tends to be the same people that brag about having an 18 speed that they also brag about only using one gear? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're exactly right. It's, um, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, we have been taught that over the years. You know, it's been pounded in our head. And with traditionally geared trucks, it was correct because we were gear bound. I mean, mm-hmm. there were there, like the 342 with the 18, yeah. 18 speed. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Get it in top gear and keep it there. Is that the most efficient way to do things? By no means. And so we're seeing some of these, what we call super direct, like the 216 direct or 205 or 195. My problem with direct drive personally is it's very limiting. You have to stay in a very narrow operating range to get the most out of a direct drive. With an overdrive, it opens up that window. You're, you've got an extra 25 mile an hour window you can play with when you have an overdrive that's capable you know, with the gearing that we have to run in overdrive, direct drive, or underdrive at highway speed, you can do a whole lot more. And it's just, it's a joy to drive in the hills when you have that underdrive available. The truck actually pulls on par with, you know, my 455i torque pulls right on par with a 500 performance series Cummins with traditional gearing in the hills. So, um, a lot of interesting stuff. It'll be real interesting to see what that what happens when they get the tune put on this truck and and how well they hit that uh, that lower end part of the power curve for you. I'd definitely be interested in seeing that. There you go. All right, we're going to head to Michigan this time. Brandon, welcome to the program. Yeah, uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, I think it's probably more for John. Uh, I saw a post the other day. I think it was the other day. It might have been last week. Anyway, it was about the door seat on a DD-15, and they posted a link to the John Walco Racing. Is mm-hmm. that something that you're doing, or is Pittsburgh Power done away with the door seat because they started doing the max mileage? Is, is it still yeah. work? Or? When I built my website, we just put a little thing on there for it, just to see generate interest uh, and again, not so much that, uh, you know, and I'll be the first to admit the modern, more clean running engines really don't need it. Like if we put one on a Volvo once and nothing came out of it. Uh, uh, we put one on a, uh, on a max force, uh, you know, max force international and it's got tons of stuff. And pretty much every, every ISX we put it on, unless it's brand new catches. I mean, it, it really does pick a lot of stuff up. So the reason I stuck it on my website is, I, I have that patent. I'm, you know, that's, that's, that's mine. Um, evidently I'd have to get Bruce something for it if we sold it, but I would love to move it along. I'd like to see somebody else do something with it. Um, and that, that'd be great. So I just put it there just for people to look at if they wanted to. I personally don't have the means to make them. I, I can't go into production. I, I mean, I could build you one. It's going to take me about uh, 20 hours on my welding table, you know, with, 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 with my, my, all my hand tools to do it. And there's no way I can charge enough money to make any money at it. So, you know, it's there. Um, I put it out there just in case we could generate some interest and, you know, 
uh, yeah, I would love to see someone go do something with it. Uh, but, you know, the, 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 the okay. Pittsburgh power line is if you run Max Mallet, your truck doesn't make soot anyway. And for they, power, are they be, still in those? No, they're not making them anymore. No, they stopped. So, okay, yeah, so, so they, they made them there in house. No, nah, I think the uh, manufacturer made their mufflers made them. So we went to the muffler manufacturer and he set up a little line and he's had some automated welders and stuff that were able to do it a lot quicker and a lot cheaper than you could by hand. So they subbed it out to the oh, same okay. people who make their mufflers. Yeah. And they were, that was okay. okay. So they sold us, they sold out of what they had and, and that was it. And they, they focus on other things now. Um, you know, personally, if I had a truck with an ISX in it, I, I wouldn't run it without it. I, it just, it, it, it works. It's uh, really simple. Um, you know, besides, you know, getting the soot out of there, catches moisture and some other stuff. Because when you cool the exhaust, it creates moisture. It's uh, it's pretty handy on there. It's, it works pretty well. But, uh, and again, I don't want to say Cummins are dirty, but it, <laughs> that's the one that catches stuff. <laughs> and if you've got one with a half a mil on it, you know, if you, if you got an ISX with a half a mil on it, it's burning a little bit of oil or, or, or three quarters of a mil, it's burning a little bit of oil, you're going to catch a lot of stuff in there. Yeah, facts so, are facts. You know, it's, 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 facts are facts. <laughs> yeah. It's a fish does. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, again, I'd like to see someone pick it up. And we, we threw that there as a little placeholder. I was maybe going to do its own website. And we just tossed it on my racing website to, to have a place to put it. Uh, the guy who did my website also helped with some of the marketing stuff on that. So he had, had all the info already and everything. So it's just a good friend of mine who does that. So, yeah, I know there was a lot of buzz about it. I, I must have got 30 emails. Uh, I have a little inquiry thing on there that comes back when, when people click on it. And it's, you know, I, I just don't have the means to do it. I, you know, I don't have a, I don't, I don't have the way, a way to have them made or install them. And you know, with all my travel and everything too, I can't, but you know, that said, I would love to see someone, you know, pick it up and run with it somehow. Um, so I can't like imagine the, that, you know, it worked great. Like, you know, I, you know, I think like farm tractors and stuff that, that they could probably really benefit from it. But, uh, yeah, never, never had the means to do that and had a couple of, you know, interesting questions there online. Like, why don't you put it, uh, you know, before the, the, uh, the, the Delta P and stuff, stuff like that, which I'd love to, but it was always just packaging and position wise there. I mean, I mean, I spent a whole lot of time on the phone and at a desk and I really didn't get to tinker like I'd like. And there really wasn't budget to do any kind of real development, uh, you know, to really, really go with it. So it just uh, is what it is. Um, so I really feel like I said, they, they just stopped doing it and that was it. Okay. So like the, the DD 13, the DD 15 is they wouldn't really benefit from having they, something like that. They do. So we, we've been hit and miss on this. Um, you know, I, I don't think it hurts anything. So it's like a no harm if you have it on there. Uh, and if your engine is making some soot, it's going to catch it before it goes in. So I, I don't, you know, the, the, the DD 15 was kind of hitting this. We had some that did catch some stuff. Uh, we definitely had some that, that, that caught some. And, uh, it, interestingly, you know, if you look at the science and there's a whole bunch of research and there are a number of SAE white papers written about how filtered EGR is, uh, more effective at, at reducing NOx. And some of the trucks we did it to did it actually end up using less, less depth after we put it on. Uh, so the, the cleaner, the cleaner CO2 is what, what I think is CO2. Jolkin, Jolkin, correct me on that. I'm, I'm getting rusty on this. Is CO. Uh, that's CO2 that's, that, that, that helps uh, soften the combustion process. And it's more effective if it doesn't have particulate in it. So there's there are a number of benefits to it. But uh, so, yeah, just never had the budget to do anything with it. John, so one of the things that we've seen you know, in, in our fleet, and this is just, 
I think applies generally across the board. So when we see the effectiveness of the Dorothy catching soot in some DD-15s and not others, this goes all back to how they're geared in that piston speed. And the higher the average piston speed, generally we're pumping more air and cooling things down, and then we're making more soot. So it, it wouldn't surprise me if you went back through there and you started looking at gear ratios of these trucks and the speeds they were running at, and you could kind of get a general idea of average RPM. You know, the, the trucks that are running at a higher average RPM typically are the ones in our fleet that if we do have emission problems, it's going to, it's going to be them. And, uh, we learned that the hard way with the direct drive trucks years ago when we were a 60 mile an hour fleet, hardcore, the direct drive worked really well. And then as we had to adapt to changing business cycles and we had, you know, further runs, we had to run faster in order to meet customer expectations. Those trucks that, you know, ran so well and clean at 60 at a particular RPM when we bumped them up to 70 and, and got a little high in the RPM band. I mean, they were dropping like flies there for a while. Mm-hmm. So then we spec, spec this overdrive thing and brought that RPM back down. Now you can run a hundred mile an hour and it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't make any, doesn't make any difference at all. Cause you can keep that piston speed low, but, uh, that average RPM and soot kind of go hand in hand. And the higher that average RPM, what we're seeing in our fleet and a couple other fleets we benchmark against are seeing the exact same thing running the pack R and the Cummins engines. Um, when, when you, when you try to cruise them out over 1300 RPM, you're going to have problems. No doubt between 12 and 1300, they start to moderate. If you can keep them under 1200 RPM, you'll have almost no problem at all. Right. And that could be part of why the Cummins does what it does, because you can't really downspeed an IS-6. I mean, they're short. Right. Uh, that's, right. You're going right. to spit one out the side, yeah. So it's got to yep. yeah, turn. That's, yeah. that's exactly right. And when you think about that short connecting rods geometry of very slow to top dead center and then runs away to bottom dead center, you've got that huge variation in piston speed just because of the, the geometry on that connecting rod, um, that can't help matters any. Um, so, you know, in an engine like that, hey, dump catalyst in the damn thing. <laughs> There's no doubt in my mind. Um, but if you have a, an engine that's running at lower RPM, has the longer connecting rod, and therefore we've got less variation in piston speed during the stroke, um, probably don't need it at that point. So just something to think about. Hey, yeah, for sure. You guys have been talking so long, I zoned out there for a little while, and then I just looked up at the board, and I, <laughs> I, 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 I put Paul on the line, I don't know how long ago, and never, I haven't even said anything to him yet. So, uh, And then in the middle of all that, I, I got challenged by Angie. So the reason I zoned out was I was trying to think of how to – rise to Angie's challenge and I just couldn't come up with anything. I've said many times I, I'm not really a funny guy. You know, humor's not my thing. Um, and Angie wanted me to say something funny so she could hear John laugh one more time before we head into the weekend. <laughs> there you go, Angie. That, that, that's all I could come up with was just tell you that's what I was trying to do and I failed. So uh, That worked. Yeah, it worked. Yeah. So there we go. All right. So, Paul, I put you on the, on the line here a couple minutes ago. What you up to today? Just unloaded down here in South Texas. It's rather toasty, but I'm empty headed to get another load to go back to Oklahoma and be back home for the weekend. 
There you go. Um, you were talking about the, you know, the global economy and the world collapsing and everything. Well, there's only two places I'd want to be. It's either here or New Zealand. Hey, but New Zealand's biggest handicap is its isolation. Uh, actually, New Zealand is going to fare very well throughout this. There was only a couple things. <laughs> and all of your cows are outside eating grass all year round. It's hard to beat. Uh, yep. You have the cleanest. You have the cleanest air on the planet. You have plenty of energy. You have plenty of water, and you have plenty of ability to raise all your own food. New Zealand was one of the countries that's going to fare very, very well. Um, there, there were a couple shortcomings. I can't remember what they were, but it wasn't anything major. One of the things that he also claims during this time is that for a, a couple of decades we're not going to progress much i mean we're if he's right we're barely going to survive in some parts of the world progress is basically going to stop and i i think that was one of the things about new zealand you wouldn't see a lot of new technology there were some things that they weren't going to be able to have access to but for the most part you know quality of life in new zealand wasn't going to suffer because it, it's another country that you basically have everything you need. Yeah, well, we've got oil and gas. Like, all, all the oil exploration companies, Slumberjay, Weatherford, Halliburton, they all got offices right there in the city that I grew up in. Yeah, and, you... Uh, so we've got oil and the natural gas. And if, if, any, if any country ever did invade New Zealand and they got... Um, vehicles onto the ground. All we got to do is let the sheep out onto the road, and they can't go nowhere. Because anyway. <laughs> the, the first trip that I took my wife back to New Zealand, and I said we were touring around. We went right around the whole country. The first trip, and uh, I said I guarantee we'll be somewhere um, on the on the main highway. We were on State Highway One, which is top to bottom North Island, right through to the bottom of the South Island. And I said, I guarantee we're going to run into sheep somewhere. And she's like, this is the main road. And I said, yeah, well, there'll be some farm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. New Zealand. Uh, a thousand sheep. Yeah. It's, if it's the, good if you're going the, the opposite way that they are because you just got to stop. And once the first 10 get past you, they all go. But if you're going the same way, I hope you're not in a hurry. Yeah, after reading this book, I'm back to the point where New Zealand is my plan B again. <laughs> the next thing that New Zealanders need to do is get rid of our Prime Minister, because she's a Joe Biden, Obama, well, Bill Gates fan. So, you know, here, yep, here's the crazy there. thing. I, I don't know why we tend to do this as humans, but why do we take some of the most beautiful places in the world and screw them up with a bunch of crazy politics? <laughs> someone can make money out of it. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, look, Christ, look what we did to California. My God. Yeah. California is yeah. stunning. It has everything you could possibly want. And then we screw it up with a bunch of goofy politicians. Uh, New Zealand was kind of the same yeah. thing. Yeah, New Zealand really scored well. And in, in if all this happens, uh, New Zealand will do really well. And Australia. Yeah, well, people think that New Zealand and Australia are really close together. Well, they are it, comparatively, ways, but it's actually yeah, it's but it's twelve hundred miles apart. So. Yeah, you're 
still quite a hike. Yeah, you're not going to swim. Yeah. No, but you can paddle a boat because a couple of guys did that. So. We'll see. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So. So that's about all I got today. All right. That's all we need. And uh, I think I'm just about, uh, well, I'm not out of ideas. I could, I got all kinds of stuff, but uh, <laughs> I, I think, I, I think I've, I've stirred things up enough today. Anything uh, you guys want to close with? No, I'm good. All right. You have you yeah, two? I don't, don't really have anything to close. No, we covered, we covered way more than I would have. Yeah, <laughs> we, we were all over, all over the place. You guys have two homework assignments. I'm on it. Definitely get on it, yeah. I, and I don't want to hear my dog ate my homework next week. No excuses. <laughs> so, hey, Kevin, I want you to uh, back to that subject. I, I do have a little something I wanted to mention to you, and we, we moved on to other things. That, um, so talking about the personalities and having different people around and so forth. Uh, I did a lot of work with a guy named Dr. Jacques Belair and he's, he owned a company called human performance and now it's called performance prime, but he's got a book called performance thinking. I want you to look it up. You'll, you'll enjoy it. Uh, but his whole deal is about making sure you're around people who aren't like you. You know, you need to compliment each other. That's the way you make the whole greater than the sum of the parts is to have, people to compliment each other it's, it's pretty cool and i've always lived by it it's, it's a really neat, neat read and the guys are a really good friend of mine oh really okay um check yep. that out. yeah yeah you know yeah, I, Dr. I, we we actually use this test that you know i want you guys to go take when we hire people and we use it is this somebody we need to kind of round things out? We don't want a company full of people that are all the same. I wanted the exact opposite. I, I saw all my weaknesses and I want to hire people to fill those weaknesses. Like I said, our, our management team kind of works really well because Lisa and Aaron and I are, are three totally different you know, personalities and strengths when it comes to this. And then we really do try to keep people doing what, you know, they're good at, what their strengths are. One, it makes the company more efficient. Everything works better, but people are happier. If you spend your day doing something you are good at, you're a whole lot happier than when you spend your day struggling with something that frustrates you that you're not good at. Oh, yeah. It's the old never work a day in your life analogy. It's true. It really is. <laughs> yeah. I, so we, we, we actually use it and, and we do look for different strengths to fill in the gaps that we might have. When we hire somebody, we look at that. What, what are the strengths that we might be missing in our current team? And could we find somebody to fill that? I really enjoy managing and running teams. Uh, it's you know something I've had to do in motorsport. And then as much as I like tinkering with the cars, tinkering with the, the chemistry amongst the people is something, another thing that I really just enjoy doing. Yeah, you, you will, uh, you'll find a lot of great ideas in this book and this assessment on how to build teams better and how to manage the people you've got using this idea. Cool. Yeah. Yep. And I, uh, I just downloaded the book performance thinking it's on my Kindle. Oh, good deal. All yep. right. I got it. So I guess I have homework too. 
<laughs> All right. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. All right. I, I need to get to work. Yeah, you might hear me dropping wrenches right now. So, yeah. <laughs> I got to get on something here. Dro- so, dropping yeah. them's okay. Throwing them, that's. Uh, we want to stay away no, no. from that. Yeah. All right. We're going to wrap this up. Um, <laughs> hey, I got to say, you know, we used to try to do this every other week and then we'd miss it. Now that we've gone to just doing it every week, we're on quite a streak. I'm really enjoying this. Well, cool. I'll do my best next week. I will be in Indianapolis at a Ferrari Challenge race, but I should be able to break away. Okay. So that's, well, my, that's my latest gig is that Ferrari thing. We'll and uh, I'm going to Italy in the fall. They're going to they're gonna send me to the World Championships. So oh, wow. In, uh, that's exciting. Yeah. I'll, I'll be, be headed to Italy for, to work on Ferraris in, uh, in October. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. All right. We'll yeah. wrap this up. Everybody have a great weekend. We will see you on Monday. Uh, oh, on Monday. We have another new product announcement from Garmin. Garmin's just been cranking stuff out. So we'll, uh, we'll talk about that on Monday. We'll see you then. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey. Have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday.